Hey, good to see you, everybody. Doesn't the stage look great up here? I appreciate the worship team doing that, Susan Drake especially, but lots of hands helped out with that. I don't know if you noticed, we have a new drummer up here. That was Joseph. He's one of our newest members, and he's bringing his drumming talents. That was like adding Ringo to the Beatles, and that was great. Joseph did a great job. So it's December, and so we're starting our Christmas season, and we have a new Christmas series. This is brand new. This is all fresh bread. There's nothing warmed up. There's no leftovers here. It's all brand new. We're starting a new service, a series rather, and I want to start with a pop quiz. So this is a pop culture Christmas quiz. If you know the answer, just call it out. Number one, a red-nosed reindeer helped Santa guide his sleigh through a blizzard on Christmas Eve. What was his name? Rudolph. A green creature with a bad attitude tried to stop Christmas from coming in Whoville. What was his name? Grinch. A snowman came to life beneath a magician's hat, magic hat one Christmas Eve. What was his name? Frosty. And then fourthly, a miser was visited by three ghosts on Christmas Eve, resulting in a change of heart. What was his name? Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge. All right, that was pop culture. We flipped the card here. Now let's do the biblical Christmas quiz. And these are pretty straightforward. I have no, no trick questions here. Number one, a baby was born to a virgin. What was her name? Mary. Mary was engaged to whom? Joseph. The baby's name was what? Jesus. Where was the baby Jesus born? Bethlehem. There was no room for Mary and Joseph in the what? In the end. The baby was visited in the manger by some scruffy locals. What was their occupation? Those were the shepherds. Later, some wise men visited the little family and brought what gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And finally, a young lad showed up to play his musical instrument for baby Jesus. Who was that? Little drummer boy. That one probably should have been in the previous pop culture quiz, but you scored 100% on those two quizzes. So those basics about the Christmas story are pretty well known. We're very familiar with it. The Christians are very familiar with it. Even those who aren't Christians, haven't grown up going to church, pretty much know those basics. What we want to do in this series, kind of get behind the basics a little bit and talk about this. What was Jesus thinking at Christmas. So this is a different kind of a series with a different Christmas text. There is a Christmas text, of course, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. The one we're going to be dealing with is in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And this is the Apostle Paul's Christmas text. And it delves into what Jesus was thinking when Christ was born as a child in Bethlehem. But what I want to do today, I want to set the table for the rest of the series. And we want to ask the question, why? Why are we asking what was Jesus thinking? Why do we care what Jesus was thinking? Why does that matter? And there may be a lot of reasons and we could give answers, but we're just going to look at three today. What Jesus was thinking, first of all, at Christmas is informative. What Jesus was thinking is informative. Now you probably know before Jesus of Nazareth was conceived and born, there was a, the pre-existent part of his nature. So Jesus of Nazareth had two natures. 
He had a divine nature and he had a human nature. The theologians say he was fully God and fully man. So the divine nature of Christ pre-existed the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. All right, we have this in John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God in the Greek. That Word is logos, translated into Word. It's very pregnant with meaning. But the logos, the Word, was with God, was God. John, uh, verse 14, and the Word became human flesh and lived among us. Now, let me read you a long selection here from theologian Jack Cottrell and what he says about this. The Bible portrays Jesus as fully human and fully divine. How did such a being come into existence? This happened when the eternally pre-existing Logos, the second person of the Trinity, entered into or was united with the human person, Jesus of Nazareth, in connection with the latter's miraculous conception in Mary's womb. This event is called the incarnation, which literally means enfleshment. Incarnation means enfleshment. On the one hand, the human nature of Jesus, in fact, the very person known as Jesus of Nazareth, had a beginning. Strictly speaking, Jesus did not exist prior to the virginal conception. But on the other hand, the divine nature of Jesus did not have a beginning. It is eternal. As the Logos, he existed forever. This is usually called the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, even though the quality of pre-existence applies only to the divine being who became Jesus Christ. The divine Logos added something to his divine nature, the fully human nature of Jesus of Nazareth. So that, that's what happens in the incarnation. Those are the bare facts. But we want to delve a little bit deeper behind those bare facts because then it becomes a little bit more relevant and engaging for us. For instance, if I told you now, there's a fictional Christmas story in which a wife buys a watch chain for her husband's pocket watch, and the husband buys a set of combs for his wife's hair. You might think, ho-hum. But if I add a little bit of context and detail and the thought process to that story, then it becomes more engaging and one of the widest read Christmas stories in literature. O. Henry's short story, The Gift of the Magi. And that's a story that takes place about 150 years ago in New York. There was this wife, they were, you know, the husband and the wife, they were poor. She only had about a dollar and 27 cents to buy a Christmas gift for her husband. And that's not a lot today. It was more back then, before our currency had been totally debased as it has been now. But she wanted to buy a nice Christmas gift. The thing that she treasured most was her hair. She had long, beautiful hair. And so she decided to go out and have her hair cut short. She sold her hair for $20. She took the $21 and bought a platinum watch chain for her husband's gold watch. That's what he prized. It had belonged to his father and his grandfather. 
And she rushed home to make dinner. And when her husband came home that day and he saw her, and, what's up? And he, she told him, I, I sold my hair so that, so that I'd have the money to, to get you a really special Christmas present. And then the husband revealed to his wife, well, I got you a special gift, Miss Christmas present. Christmas present. He said, I got you this nice, beautiful set of expensive combs for your hair. And, he, and she said, oh, well, here's your gift. It's a watch chain for your watch. And he said, I sold my watch to get your combs. So now they, they each have Christmas gifts that neither one can use because she's cut her hair and he sold his watch. However, in the story, they realized what they did, they did for love and how precious their love for one another is. So understanding thought processes and motivations adds context and engagement. Likewise, what was Jesus thinking when the Logos left what glory he had in heaven to become enfleshed as a human being? Paul writes in Philippians 2.6, he, that is Christ, had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave and became human. It was an incredibly humbling process. Whatever Jesus was thinking, he wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of us. And he was thinking thoughts of love. That helps us to engage with Christ, with God, to appreciate Him, which adds another dimension to our worship of Him. So I'm just saying, we're answering the question, why are we asking this? What was Jesus thinking? It's informative. Secondly, it's normative. What Jesus was thinking is normative. Philippians 2.5, I'm going to read this verse in two different versions. First version, think as Christ Jesus thought. Or you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now, here Paul, we're not going to dive deep into it today, but in future sermons, he's taking this, this Christmas narrative that he has in Philippians chapter 2. He's making a brief application of it here. Whatever Jesus was thinking, we should be thinking the same way he was when he became a human being. We should have the same attitude that he had when he became a human being. In other words, the thoughts of Christ are normative for us. They are to be a pattern for us. We're to think like he thought and have attitudes like he had. To do so, to think like Christ, is to think rightly about everything and to have the right attitude toward everyone in our life. Now, let's face it, some of the thoughts we have, some of the attitudes that we have, we live out every day, we live on, we haven't necessarily stepped back and examined all of those thoughts and attitudes. They can be shaped or misshaped, right, by our family, sometimes our family of origin, our environment, the time that we grow up in, our society. We're shaped by all of that. But none of that is true of, of Jesus. He's the only one who has what they call, the philosophers would call the view from nowhere. He is outside of, of time and the influences of a misshapen family or a culture. His thoughts are always right. I, I, 
I heard about a, a mom who was making the Christmas ham, and her little daughter was watching her. And the mom cut two inches off the ham, put it in the pan, stuck it in the oven. Little girl says, Mommy, why'd you do that? She said, do what? Why'd you cut two inches off the ham, put it in the pan, put the pan in the oven? The mom paused for a minute, and then she said, honestly, I don't know. That's the way my mom always prepared the Christmas ham. Said, Let's call Grandma and ask her. So they got Grandma on the phone and said, Grandma, I, just, I was just thinking about how every Christmas you cut two inches off the ham, put it in the pan, then put it in the oven. Why did you do that? And Grandma paused for a minute. She said, you know, I'm not sure. That's the way my mom always did it. Let's ask Nana. So they got Nana on the phone. They did a conference call. Nana got one of her grandkids, show her how to do a conference call. They got on the conference call. They asked her the same question. Nana, why'd you cut two inches off the ham, put it in the pan, then put it in the oven? And Nana said, well, I don't know why you girls did it. I did it because my pan was too small. <laughs> so sometimes we do things, we think things, we have attitudes. Who knows where they come from? But Paul is saying the thoughts of Christ are to be normative for us. Think his thoughts after him. Have his attitudes. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. Now when Paul says we have the mind of Christ, we, though we there, is not we Christians. If I understand what the Bible teaches, you look at that in its context. That's called the apostolic we. He's saying we apostles have the mind of Christ. This was a claim of Holy Spirit inspiration of the apostles. We have the mind of Christ. He says in verse 13, same chapter, when we tell you these things, we apostles, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. So Paul is saying right here to the Corinthians, and by extension to us, when I teach, when I'm writing to you this letter, these are not just human thoughts. These are the words of the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And what that means is everything Paul wrote in the New Testament are the thoughts of Christ. And not just Paul, the other apostles as well, and the prophets who wrote by inspiration what they call the apostolic circle that wrote the New Testament. Those are the thoughts of Christ. When we read the New Testament, we are thinking his thoughts after him. And that's normative for us. Now, I like the way Dallas Willard puts this about Christ's thoughts being normative. It's kind of a long reading, so hang with me here. Dallas Willard writes, In our culture and among Christians as well, Jesus Christ is often disassociated from brilliance or intellectual capacity. Not one in a thousand will spontaneously think of him in conjunction with words such as well-informed, brilliant, or smart. Far too often he's regarded as hardly conscious. He is taken as a mere wraith-like semblance of a man living on the margins of the real life where you and I must dwell. He's perhaps fit for the role of sacrificial lamb or alienated social critic, but little more. But can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be? what Christians take him to be in other respects and not be the best informed, 
most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived, bringing us the best information on the most important subjects. The early Christians learned to do everything they said or did in cooperative action with Jesus, their always present teacher. If we would live the life which God made for us, we must take our guiding information from Jesus. Someone has said, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I don't have to be the smartest person in the room to live a rich and satisfying life. I just have to be smart enough to listen to, to trust in and follow the smartest person in the room. And the smartest person in any and every room is Jesus. That's all true of everything in the New Testament. But what we're focusing on this month is specifically what was going on in the mind of Christ during this time of incarnation, what we call Christmas. It's why Michael Gorman, in his book, The Crucified Christ, says this passage we're going to be studying, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, is Paul's master story. It flavors everything in Philippians, but it actually, it influences everything that Paul wrote in all of his letters, his master story. Okay, so why ask? Why don't we ask? Because what Jesus was thinking was informative. It is normative for us. But finally, because what Jesus was thinking is transformative. It's transformative. Romans 12, 2. Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's no commandment in the Scripture to read the Bible every day. It's not there. Now, why is that? I think it's because um, probably uh, when it was written, uh, a lot of early believers were illiterate, and they didn't have access to written Scriptures. Most of the Scripture, what we would call Scripture that they had, were on scrolls, locked up tight in synagogues. Books, what we know as books, were very expensive, Publication had not been invented yet, printing the way we think of it. That's one of the reasons Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, when the church comes together, give your attention to the public reading of Scripture. Read the letters that I have written to you and other Scriptures. Because they had to learn through listening, listening to God's Word. And they, they focused a lot on memorization. I think they memorized much of what we have in Scripture. But for we who are literate and we have these precious writings at our fingertips, yes, we should be reading God's Word. Jesus referred to it as the bread of life. He said, and we have our daily bread. And you know, I'm a big advocate of the one-year Bible as a reading plan. It's a reading plan. And by the way, just a quick sidebar right here. Uh, uh, Back on Thanksgiving, this past Thanksgiving, I baptized my grandson, Carson. And so it was a big day for us. He's 11 years old. And we, Tammy and I, we bought for Carson a one-year Bible, a children's one-year Bible. Let me show you. Got one for our church library. I'll show it to you. This is a children's one-year Bible. It's divided into 365 daily readings. This would be appropriate for 7, 8, 9, 10, or 11 years. It is edited and it's condensed. 
So not everything in the Bible is kid-friendly for 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. So it's edited and it's condensed. The readings are a little bit shorter, but it gets children into the, the habit, the rhythm of reading the Bible every day. We bought that for Carson. And it's something a parent can read with their child every day. Great tool in that respect. Somebody last week was asking me, said, can you recommend a Bible? I want to get one for Christmas for my grandchild. My granddaughter is seven years old. This is what I recommended. So it just got me to thinking. That may be a question that a lot of people have as we're buying gifts this Christmas for our children or for our, grand, our grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Highly recommend this. It's written in the New Living Translation. Very readable. Uh, and also, what I used with Carson, you know, when children start asking about baptism, you're not quite sure if they're ready. We're trying to gauge that. Then I, I have a a worksheet on salvation here to use with children and where they can look up scriptures about what I believe about faith, what I believe about repentance, what I believe about confession, what I believe about baptism, and what I believe about staying faithful. So Carson and I worked through this. He looked up these scriptures, answered some questions, filled in some blanks, and he, he knew what he needed to know. And then I laminated that. I laminate that scripture I mean, that, this uh, page, that worksheet. And I gave a copy to his parents so that he's 11 when he's, say, 20 years from now, when he's 31, and he's saying, you know, I was baptized when I was 11. What did I even know? Did I understand what I was doing? Then his parents can pull out that laminated sheet and give it to him and say, this is what you knew. You, you knew all of this and kind of reassure him. And we kept a laminated copy for ourselves as well because his parents will lose their copy, but we'll, we will not. So um, I'll have this Bible right up here on the front row, and I've got a stack of these worksheets as well. If you're, if you're interested in that, just take a picture of the cover of that Bible, and you could, you, could offer, uh, you could order one of those as well. So the thing about uh, transformation when we're reading the Bible, whether you use the one-year Bible like I do, a lot of us do, or some other reading plan, we want to read it so as to be transformed. David Watson was dying of cancer, and he writes this before he had a, an operation to remove that cancer. He says, I spent time chewing over the endless assurances and promises to be found in the Bible. I like that word chewing. Meditating. I, I, I practice journaling. I've been journaling since April of this year. I'm new to it just since April, but I recommend it. I think it's a way to meditate on Scripture. There's a lot of different ways to do journaling. You can, we can journal our feelings, journal what we're thankful for. But I also, I journal the, the Scripture for that day's reading, especially the New Testament portion, putting it in the form of a first-person affirmation. So, for instance, today, the date for today is December 4th. The New Testament reading for December 4th is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 21. So I read that this morning, and it was like God revealing to me. No, I'm kidding. No idea where that came from. I'm glad it went away. Uh, so I was reading those scriptures. I got about 20 affirmations 
out of that passage. I'm just going to read you six. I just, this is kind of an equipping. I know not one, not one Christian in a thousand journals, but someone might. And this is a great way to put us in a position where the Word of God can produce transformation in our lives. So for instance, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-21, through 21, John writes, you are children of God. You are His dear children. So I, I put that this way. Number one, I belong to you, God, as your dear child. And here's, here's five other affirmations I made. I'm victorious because the Spirit who lives in me is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world. Three, I continue to love others for love comes from you. Four, I am your child, God, and I know you. Five, you showed how much you loved me by sending your Son into the world that I might have eternal life. Six, since you loved me that much, I love others. On and on and on it goes. Affirmations based on that day's Scripture reading. See, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It, it cuts between joint and marrow. It discerns the motives and attitudes within us. It is a catalyst for transformation in our lives if we will read it and read it with a goal of being transformed in the process. Let me, let me finish up with this verse here from Paul, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Speaking of transformation in the Word of God. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we read the Scriptures and we reflect on the character of Christ, that's what glory means, the character of Christ in God, that is the very process by which God is transforming us into his image. That's why we're asking, what was Jesus thinking? May we be transformed in the process.